What are the lived experiences of being the other in academia? Why is it the case that when somebody submits a paper with data from Latin America, for instance, they get asked all kinds of questions about methodology, the choice of research site, etc., etc., that somebody who submits a paper about the country in the global north never gets asked? Doesn't this impoverish academia as a whole? About this, and many other fascinating and sometimes painful aspects of doing research in the Global South, is this conversation with the outstanding Ignacio Siles in this episode of El Café Latinx. What's the experience of being a Latinx scholar in the field of communication and media studies? What are the main challenges and opportunities that come with our identities? These are the issues that we'll talk about in El Café Latinx where some of the leading voices in the field will share their professional experiences. Hola, my name is Pablo Bochkowski. I teach at Northwestern University, where I hold the Hamad bin Khalifa Al-Thani Chair in Communication. Together with Mora Matassi, doctoral student at Northwestern and executive producer of this podcast, we invite you to discover the journeys of scholars who are at the cutting edge of creating knowledge about Latinx communication across the Americas. These are our stories. Esas son nuestras historias. Estas son nuestras historias. Hello, everybody. Welcome to this new episode of El Café Latinx. I am truly delighted to be joined today by Ignacio Siles. Ignacio is professor at the Universidad de Costa Rica, where he did also his undergraduate studies. After that, he did a master's uh, degree at the University of Montreal in Canada and a PhD at Northwestern University. He is very, very widely published. He's the author of uh, three books. Um, um, most recently, A Transnational History of the Internet in Central America, 1985 to 2000s, Networks, Integration and Development. He's published two other monographs two edited volumes, more than 25 journal articles. His work has received awards from, for instance, uh, the American Sociological Association. And he's without any doubt, uh, one of the leading scholars of digital culture in Central America for sure, and in the Americas in general. So Ignacio, welcome to El Café Latinx. It's truly a pleasure to have you here. Hola, hola, Pablo. Thank you for having me. It's an, an honor to be here and a joy always to talk with you. Thank you very much, my friend. So let's start from the beginning. Tell us, how did it all begin? Is, how was the start of the journey that led you to become a professor? Okay, I, I guess that's a story that has like at, at least two or three acts. <laughs> the first one would be so I grew up in a home with a mother who, who is a historian who got her PhD in history. And I think that all that sort of naturalized the idea of, of being linked to a university and seeing in practice what uh, being a professor, professor actually uh, meant. We, we went with her to Belgium. She got a, a scholarship to get a PhD in history in Belgium. So we lived in Belgium for several years. And I think that also shaped my, my expectations in life. And that opened my eyes to to uh, the sort of experiences that I wanted to have. I used to join her all the time to go to campus uh, and to, you know, I, I was with her when she was grading her papers. Uh, so I think that that sort of set 
um, uh, kind of an expectation in life and, and naturalize the idea of what being a professor actually looked like. The second act was uh, going to college. Uh, I decided to study communication studies, not really <laughs> understanding what it was, I guess. I was too young to make that decision. Um, and I wanted to be a filmmaker originally, but at some point, as it often happens, you take one of those classes that blows your mind completely and, and, and you meet a professor or a teacher who's, um, who goes beyond the call of duty and, and really opens your eyes to a new way of understanding life and new ways of, understand, of understanding the world. So that happened to me in a class uh, about communication theory, where for the first time I, I discovered that discussion, you know, that communication studies was also a, an academic discipline or a field uh, or a post field, if you believe what uh, some people have argued recently. Uh, but I, I discovered entirely a new, a, a new way to, to look at communication. And, and that really was fascinating to me. Uh, I took every class this professor taught at the university and then also started to learn more about, you know, research methods and all that. And that shaped my, my, my life uh, profoundly. I think it, it really made me see communication studies in a different way and started to think I, I wanted to do this uh, in a more systematic way. And then the third act I would say was, okay, so after I graduated from college, I decided to get to start working in, you know, I, I started working editing videos, actually. It was a post-production company uh, so I would usually go with, you know, people to, uh, to the set and tape everything and film everything and then bring the material back and I was in charge of editing. Um, but then I started to think about the idea of getting a master's degree and I said, well, I don't want to do this in editing or post-production. That's really not my, my what I want to spend two or three years doing. So I decided to do it in what really was fascinating to me was communication theory and decided to go for a master's, like an, a, an academic master's program. I was fortunate enough to uh, get into Montreal, University of Montreal, and then I did a master's in that. And then of course, I met someone who, who was my advisor, as the master's degree advisor, who's Thierry Barbini, a French sociologist living in Canada. And so he introduced me to a different set of, of, of theories and ways of, of understanding the world. And by the time I finished the master's, I returned to Costa Rica. I, it, to me, it was, that was the only thing I could do in my life was, okay, first get a PhD and then trying to become a professor. Okay, so, so you went back um, from Montreal, from Canada to Costa Rica, to San Jose. Right. Yes, yes. I decided to go back, um, try to get some experience uh, at the university. Uh, so I was hired at the University of Costa Rica just to teach a couple of classes, like intro, intro level classes. Um, it's a different system, right? So in Costa Rica, it's not that uncommon for people who haven't gotten their PhDs yet to start teaching at, at that level. Um, and then I think it was four years later uh, that I ended up uh, leaving for Chicago or Evanston to do the PhD. In the meantime, I was, okay, really clarifying what is it that I wanted to do my PhD in. So what, what kind of, 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 do I want to do it in communication studies? Uh, do I want to do it in SDS or science and technology studies, which is this new thing that I discovered in Montreal. Uh, and I was fortunate enough to find someone who was the best uh, doing both or mixing both. Uh, and and I, as soon as I read, um, your book, uh, Digitizing the News, 
And I, I think it was Thierry in Montreal who recommended it to me. Probably because it was 2004, right? When it came mm -hmm. out. So I said, this is what I want to do. Uh, how can I work with this person? How could I um, start bridging those areas in, in such interesting ways? And I thought it was like a, a way to you know, move the field forward, but it was also a way to move my career, my, my, my knowledge forward uh, by not repeating what I had already known. Okay. Now, so you then have sort of inhabited, uh, you know, academic cultures in Costa Rica and Central America, um, in Canada, um, in Europe, when you were, um, you know, a young person with your mother, and you also spent a year doing research in France, um, and you were based at Sciences Po there, and in the U.S. at Northwestern. How, I mean, one thing that has always fascinated me is to, to, to see how different people experience different academic cultures. So um, how, what has been your experience of being a communication scholar in, in all these different contexts? I mean, by now we counted four, right? I mean, France, Canada, US, Costa Rica. Is the discipline sort of a different discipline in the different places, the objects of inquiry different, the ways we look at them, the way people relate? Tell us a little bit, uh, if you could reflect a little bit of your, your, your experience and your impression of that. Yeah, it's an interesting question. I, I don't think I had like explicitly thought of, about it uh, recently, but definitely I think there are, one thing I like about communication studies is that we're not as, as intense in defending the disciplinary boundaries uh, as other social sciences are. So I think that's common to all of them. So. Um, many different objects of study are valid uh, as part of communication studies. That's something I really like about the field. And I think that's something that is lived uh, across uh, the continents or yeah, communication studies is very open. So I, I've never found differences in terms of what counts as an object, as a, as a legitimate object of study uh, in these settings. But of course the, the French have, for example, very long established traditions about how to do academia. I think they're more uh, focused on the person who's your advisor, for example. Um, they have this very interesting, uh, at least the place where I went to, right? They had this very interesting <clears throat> traditions. Um, like you would not be able to work during lunch. You would go out with the, with the rest of your colleagues or other members of your lab. And they would spend there at least an hour and a half discussing. And that was part of the culture of doing academia in, in Paris, right? And I always, of course, I always loved that. It's going out to have lunch in Paris, what's not to like? Um, in the US, it, it was more centered, I think, uh, on it's work, work, work. I always felt like it's work, work, work. It was common for people to have lunch in front of their, of their computers, uh, doing different things uh, while having lunch. Uh, I acquired that habit in the US and then decided I have to stop doing this. Um, but then what I liked about the US is that I feel that it, it has a very well established culture uh, for working in academia. So things are very well institutionalized, so to speak. Um, so when I went to Northwestern and one of the things I really loved about my experience there was um, there's this culture, this is how we do things. Uh, and it's a culture that fosters, you know, uh, having mentors who play a, a huge role in your development, uh, always workshop your, your work, 
uh, always find ways to present and challenge yourself. And that is a culture. It's not just, you know, your professor, your advisor wants you to do this, but there's a culture that fosters uh, working in certain ways, which I've always thought was um, very, uh, very instructive. I mean, I've learned so much during that time, even if it was, if it was very oriented, you know, work, 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 uh, there's still a, a very unique way of, of doing things that I found very fruitful, at least for, for me at that stage. Okay. Um, and it wasn't like that in France. You didn't get that sense in France or even in Canada. No, I don't think it was. I, I think it was much more of an individual effort. And then once every week you would go out with the rest of your lab and have lunch. And then you would spend all these very long uh, sessions eating and discussing, eating and discussing. Uh, but it was not, I don't think it was that common to have, you know, an institutional culture for work in academia, right? Uh, we're very well established roles and uh, very well established routines you would have in the US, you would have, you know, the, the weekly brown bag or um, this this other space where, where students can go and workshop their ideas. And that's amazing. I, I, I always liked that uh, about the US and I've never been anywhere else. It wasn't the case in Canada. I, I guess the university where I went to was perhaps beginning to establish a little bit this culture of having a lab or, or an advisor who plays a role, you know, mentoring students in, in, in very particular ways. But uh, I felt where it was more like individual initiatives as opposed to the US where it was uh, a very clear way of working and, and way of introducing yourself into this particular kind of work that is academic work. Okay, I have the two, two, two kinds of follow-up questions. I mean, one has to do with how is it in Costa Rica? The other is the fact that you were a foreigner, both in, in Europe and in North America, both in the US and in Canada. And I'm also curious about your experience as a foreign, in this case, student, uh, studying in the US, in Canada, and in France, in particular, a person from Latin America in those contexts. So where should we go next, Ignacio? Do we talk about your, your experience as a foreigner or your experience as a national from the <laughs> Sorry. Let's start with the foreigner, I guess. Sure. Um, I, there, there's a, an, an anecdote that I think captures what it, feel, what it felt like at some point, uh, being a foreigner in the U.S. and being a Latino in the U.S. So I was once with my sister-in-law who was visiting Chicago. And of course, I was you know, showing her around. And this is the Bean and this is Millennium Park. And I think it was in Millennium Park. She was wearing a hoodie that said University of Costa Rica, right? Um, and so one complete stranger <laughs> came to us and said, like, University of Costa Rica. I didn't even know that Costa Rica had universities. And so uh, that, that, <laughs> those things happen to you while you are uh, abroad. And it was like, it, it takes you, uh, it says something about willingness to know other cultures, right? So you always feel like a foreigner and that shapes your mindset. And that shapes, even if I made some of my greatest friends to this day, um, I made them in Chicago, I made them in, in Evanston in, at Northwestern, and I keep talking to them all the time. I send them everything I write, some of them, and they, I get feedback from them. Uh, so those are ties I will keep uh, forever. Uh, but you always feel like a foreigner and that shapes everything. You are a foreigner, but I, I, at some point you, I mean, I've always embraced it as part of, of the identity of the person that I was and, and, and am. Uh, so 
yes, I am that Latino who speaks with a, a mix of a Costa Rican Latino accent and, and, and that's part of it. And it's also, I don't know, a challenge to, to talk to people who have that kind of mindset about other places. And so I was fortunate. I always felt fortunate that I was not in that position and that I, I had the opportunity to, to see from with my own experience how people lived in other places. That's fascinating. That would always enrich your, your, your life, right? Uh, it will help you understand how other people think, uh, what is normal to them, why is it normal to them. Uh, so I, I, I think those experiences abroad as a foreigner are among the most important experiences I've, I've ever had. And uh, I have a daughter and I always uh, think that I would love for her to, to have the opportunity to be a foreigner uh, in other parts of the world, either for academic reasons or, or professional or personal or whatever, because that, that shapes the person you you are uh, all the time. And now that's a great anecdote. Has anything like that happened when you were in Montreal or in Paris as a foreign student or, or different kind of experience <laughs> being a foreigner there? Yes, it, it happens everywhere, I guess. Uh, the first one in, in Montreal, I think it was more so the instruction was don't ever go and open a bank account uh, from a place that is not close to campus. But I decided not to pay attention to that because I wanted to open the account close to where I lived and I wasn't particularly living close to, to campus. So the person decided not to open the account because she said, um, well, do you have permission to be here? And I was like, of course, I have a visa. Here it is, you can see it with your own eyes. Uh, and, and so, but where is the money coming from? And I was like, well, I have scholarship and, and that's where it's coming from. Yeah, but uh, did the authorities uh, take, a look, take a look at this? And I was, of course, how, how do you think I, I, I got a visa? And so it was at that level, like having always to demonstrate uh, that you have the right to be there and the right to do uh, things that aren't not, um, you know, that, that are normal uh, for other people. In, in France, I did 150 interviews for two projects during the year I spent there. So I, I spent, I actually started drinking coffee there because most of the interviews were in coffee shops in Paris that have this very particular, you know, environment this is almost a magical environment, at least the stereotype of, of, of the Parisian coffee shop, right? So I did 150 interviews there and every, I, I would say that 90% of the time uh, of those times that I did interviews, the interviewee would stop the interview within 10 minutes and ask me, where did you learn to learn to speak French? Why do you speak French? That Because it was a way to always, uh, I, don't, I don't wanna say question, but let me see where your credentials are for speaking French. Because, you know, speaking French is, uh, at least in Paris, I don't think that's uh, the way it is elsewhere in France, but in Paris, it is a very, it's a statement, right? You don't speak other languages. It's a, a statement. Uh, if you speak French, let me know where you learn. So yeah, you always feel like a foreigner. You have to justify, well, this is how I got a visa to get into Canada to open a bank account. And this is how I learned to speak French. Wow. Now, um, academic fields don't have, you know, countries and not tied to a particular country yet. Um, all countries are not equally proportionally represented in the in the different fields. So, as a as a person from Costa Rica, as a Latino in in the field of communication and media studies, ha have you felt 
some sort of um, have you had the experience of being like a foreigner or that, that gave you a particular perspective on the field or that people treated you somewhat differently because you were uh, or your research perhaps because you were uh, from Costa Rica or a Latino person? Yes, yes and no, I guess. I mean, yes, in the sense of, well, at the end of the day, academia is an expression of the best and the worst of, of society, right? The best because you can uh, definitely see work that challenges uh, to be a better people, to challenge our, the society where we live. But at the end of the day, the people who are in academia well, are also situated individuals who have lived under certain circumstances and see the world in very particular ways. So I remember the first time I ever attended a conference, this was in 2007, and I presented work about the history of the internet in Costa Rica. And so I went to this conference in Vancouver and they assigned me to a panel. And within five minutes, it was pretty obvious to us that we had nothing in common, nothing whatsoever in common. Someone was talking about visual anthropology. The other person was talking about, uh, I think it was, I can't even remember something. I think it was something in India. And so the obvious fact was that the only thing that linked us was we weren't from the global north, right? So we were assigned to that other panel, to the panel where the people who are not uh, from either the US or Europe uh, will talk to each other. And that's, I mean, I think that has changed, but I think that's one of those things I would really like to change from our field, right? Uh, to make people understand that the conversations that people from the South uh, are as important for the people in the North as uh, are other, other issues, right? Uh, so I think it, it, it still will take some work to, to do that. Um, and there has been changes. You, you can see lots of scholars from, well, Argentina, you know, around Meso, and I can give you all the names you want. Eugenia Michelson would be uh, a perfect example of this. People who publish from one, findings from very particular uh, countries in, in the best journals of the field and demonstrate that whatever you have to say about Argentina matters uh, for, for, for your knowledge of, of society, right? Of, of diversity in a society. But there's still work to do about that. And I still feel from time to time, I still feel when I get reviews, for example, because I'm still publishing, or right now I'm publishing mostly about you know, Costa Rica, which is where I live and where I feel, um, you know, not the obligation, but the, the desire to publish. Uh, you always get this reviewer who will make, I mean, asking for, for context, that's, that's a classic. You will always get someone saying, well, do these findings apply somewhere else? Uh, why don't you explain a little bit more about your context? And I feel that's something that people don't, reviewers don't ask if you publish. And I've, I've done it. I've, I've published about the US, for example, and no one asked me ever about context there. It's, it's assumed that's sort of a, that's the context or the non-case. You don't have to explain it. It is the context. Uh, so it still happens a little bit. But having said that, to be fair, I think there has also been some changes. Um, you know, recently there are more discussions about, well, maybe there is a bias. Why is communication studies feel so white? And I think that took off last year, I think it was at, at ICA, um, where at least that discussion was done. It was 2019, but still, it, it happened. Oh, wow. <laughs> now going to the, the other part of, of the follow-up question. Um, how is academia in Costa Rica? How, how does it relate? How is it similar, different from, you know, uh, in your lived experience, a professor experience as a professor there, 
Um, how would you contrast and compare with the other academic cultures that you've been, national academic cultures that you've been part of? Well, what I like about living and working in Costa Rica is that I feel it, it's a very small country, right? So there aren't that many people working in academia. So it, feel, it really feels like a community, right? And I'm, and I'm fortunate enough to work at a place that's still, it's a public university, which I always feel it's important to clarify. And that gives you enough freedom and flexibility, flexibility to choose um, the things that you study. Of course, you have to justify it. And there are boards that will go over it and say, well, yeah, this, this doesn't sound like a very good use of public funds. But for the most part, um, you have lots of, of, of freedom and flexibility. And there's what is what I feel is different is that you feel like you're starting something as opposed to things are already established and you just assume your role and these are your responsibilities and these are your um, duties and, and, and rights. Uh, in Costa Rica, it feels like you're, you're starting something. And that's something very exciting to me. You get very motivated students um, who, for the most part, I would say that they're middle class, um, but very motivated students who, who want to you know, do more things with you. If you, if you can find some funds to hire an assistant, they, they will be the best assistants you can find. And to be honest, I've always felt that working with undergrad students in Costa Rica, I mean, they're, they have an excellent um, level of, 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 of engagement with what you're doing. They're super smart. Uh, being a professor, I, I didn't think I was going to like it this much. And, and I think it's part of, of founding, um, being able to find students who are as, as stimulating, who challenge you all the time to, to really justify what you're saying. It's not just because you're a professor, that you're supposed, you can say whatever you want. It's, um, and the last thing I would say I like is that I feel relationships are very horizontal. So I guess that's part of being on this occasion, part of the culture, right? So I know the codes, I know the, the um, ways of relating, uh, but I feel like in class, we can always build a very horizontal relationship and, and feel like you're building together something. That's how I, I would describe uh, my life as a, as a professor in Costa Rica. It's always feeling that you're building together something. And that's, uh, that's something I really, really enjoy and value. Of course, there are frustrations, right? Uh, it's a public university and it's, uh, I, I would say, we should get more funds, but the 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 um, the government is taking the opposite direction, as in many other parts in Latin America. I think that's a challenge. Um, so you would want to get more funds than to strengthen public education in a country like Costa Rica, which I think has made a huge historical difference in in, in explaining the the current state of things. But so there are challenges, and like it, being a professor in many other places, uh, there are bad days as well, right? Uh, the class didn't go as good as you wanted, or or things like that. But at the end of the day, uh, it's it's stimulating because you feel you're surrounded with uh, by people who want to build something with you. And in my case, this something has to do with let's build a community of, of people, uh, colleagues, and, and students who can think uh, about the implications of digital media in a place like Central America and like Costa Rica in particular. Very interesting. Now. Um... Your first book was about France and the US. And uh, your second, um, well, it's first book in English, right? Because mm -hmm. you have another book in Spanish yes. before. First book in English. Your second book in English uh, that came out um, this year 
went back to, um, to Central America. And I say went back because your first book in Spanish was in Central America. Right. And you've been publishing, uh, very, very prolifically publishing, I, I should add, um, in the past few years um, on empirical research that you've been doing in, in Costa Rica. Going back empirically to Costa Rica, choosing these topics, is it part of this, uh, as you said before, the desire to publish about Costa Rica, but it's also part being motivated by this uh, notion of building something? Is, is that part of that? Uh, well, because from the outside of it, well, somebody might say, well, it's a matter of convenience. But what I'm hearing from you is not perhaps only a matter of convenience, perhaps at all a matter of convenience, but mm. part of a bigger sort of ethical project, if you wish. I do think it is part of a, a bigger long-term project, right? Building something uh, about um, this society in this, in this time and this day and age, right? What, what does it mean uh, to have technology and to use technologies in a place like this? So I, I'm still interested in, you know, in studying other places. I, uh, after that experience doing the PhD and comparing the US and France, I was sort of, um, Intrigue, not intrigued, but uh, I always kept uh, interested in doing comparative work. I think that adds something to your work uh, that is very special that you're able to identify things that you couldn't do uh, otherwise. Um, so I, I always kept that idea of, you know, I want to compare, uh, but now I, there are stories that haven't been told as well. So like this one, like the, the, the most recent book that tells the story of how Central America at the end of the last decade, the 18, 1980s were, civil wars across the, the region. At the end of that period, Central America connects to computer networks. And there's something about that story that I think, first of all, no one had ever said anything that I think adds to the global conversation, for example, of the history of the internet uh, in general, not, even, not, not only in Central America. So I think there are always things that you can find in a place like Costa Rica or Central America that add to the global conversation um, about these issues, whether people in the North want to hear it or not, that that's a different issue we can, that we can discuss. But um, I, I feel that those stories need to be told. I mean, I think across the region in Latin America, so many interesting things are happening with, um, with digital media um, that the challenge is to, 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 to be as, um, how can I say this? Like um, that our theories correspond to the, how vibrant things are in the field. And, and I don't think we've done a good job at doing that in Latin America in particular for reasons, uh, for example, because I still think that in Latin America, we're very much in love with the work, with extraordinary work that was done in the 80s and the 1990s. And you feel that uh, that's sort of a statement in the region, right? They, people want, want to say, I'm proudly a Latino, I'm gonna cite uh, two or three famous scholars from the 1980s and the 1990s. I would like that to change. I mean, not because of disrespect to, to these giants who wrote in the 80s and the 90s, uh, but the point of you know standing on the shoulder of giants is not to keep looking back, right? It's to, to move the field uh, where those people weren't able to do because they were living in very particular circumstances and, uh, and to do what they weren't able to do. So I think that's a challenge for me from Central America and, and that I hope we can do in Latin America. Of course, uh, recognizing what our um, scholars from the region did previously, but let's contribute to a larger conversation about what's going on in the world uh, with digital media from uh, Central America. Okay. Now, so, so what you are 
It's very interesting. So what you're describing is a little bit of a tension between um, paying tribute to the intellectual history of the region, while at the same time being part of a global conversation where that intellectual history has not had a major place. Yeah, that, I, I mean... Would you I, say that's the case, if I understand this correct? I, I'm trying to, really try to, to demonstrate that what, whatever happens in Latin America, there's something that you can gain to, to understand uh, larger things, right? It, things, you can publish things about Costa Rica in Costa Rican journals uh, because they're from Costa Rica, but my, the challenge to me is to demonstrate that even if it is in a country like Costa Rica, with five and a million, uh, five and a half million people living here, uh, there are still things that you can learn uh, mm -hmm. to 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 contribute to global knowledge or to broader knowledge about media technologies, for example. But I think Latin America, or at least part of it, uh, the field of communication studies in Latin America has been very much. Um, you know, looking back more than forward, I feel like there is this constant tendency to keep citing works. I can mention who they are. Like I admire deeply Jesus Martin Barbero and Nestor Garcia Canclin. They were awesome, right? But I don't think we should um, just cite them ritually just to show how, uh, how much we love Latin America or how much we love their contributions. I think we should try to go beyond what they did. And I don't feel that's necessarily the case, uh, always the case in Latin America. I feel like there's this tendency to, okay, so I'm gonna cite Martin Barbero once again and show how Latino I am because that was a huge contribution in, in Latin America to the study of communication studies. So my, my, what I'd like to do is, okay, that's definitely part of, of our history and that's definitely part of the, the intellectual history of communication studies in the region. Uh, let's write a new chapter in it and let's show how things that are happening in our region um, can lead us to say new things that matter not matter not only for Latin America but for the global understanding of media technologies. It's a challenge, of course, but I think it's it's a challenge worth doing. All right, mm -hmm. um, and then you know, Latin America includes many different countries with different um, you know, histories, different intellectual histories, different political, technological, media histories, and traditions. So, you know. People, will, you know, oftentimes, you know, would sort of take as default other parts of Latin America more commonly than Central America, right? Costa Rica. Absolutely, that happens all the time. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what would you say are? I mean, now that you are situated in in Costa Rica, you are not only from Costa Rica, but your work is there, takes place there. Um, you are drawing, you know, your data from there. Right. Um, what would you say uh, are some sort of similarities and differences with other parts of Latin America? Because, you know, from the outside is one big thing, but from the inside, like everything, right? You can probably see all kinds of differences. Absolutely. Which, you know, as far as, you know, communication and media research goes. Yeah, I often find that when people say Latin America, they mean four or five countries, right? Mexico, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, and perhaps Colombia as well, right? Um, but they don't, many people don't even say Central America. That's a, a, a new thing for many people to find out that there's a little bit, uh, a group of five or six uh, countries that are named Central America, as opposed to, I don't know, uh, South America or North America. Um, but, I, but I guess, um, 
so the history in particular has a, a very, the, the region has a very particular history in Central America. And so migration, for example, migration patterns are very specific to the region, for example. So uh, I have lots of many scholars, many colleagues working on, on issues of migration and, you know, how from Panama all the way to uh, Guatemala, uh, that, that's something that I think matters a lot for this region in particular. Not that it doesn't happen in other parts of the world, but the percentage of, of the number of people who are actually migrating from Central America to the U.S. or to, especially to the, to, to the U.S. is, is it's, it's amazing. It's so, I mean, the largest community of Costa Ricans living outside of Costa Rica live in New Jersey. Uh, so it, it's, it's something that I think sets apart the region and because of its links to, you know, civil wars and all that stuff that I think that that really um, is, is something that I think is unique about the region or that will allow you to identify things that uh, historically are somewhat of, of, of a particular kind. Having said that, I think there are many other things that connect us to South America, for example. So the rise of, of populist politics and its links to religion, for example, that's something you see uh, in El Salvador, you see it in Costa Rica, and I think you've seen, you, you saw it in Brazil's campaign where the soccer team Jersey and the Bible became um, the symbols of Bolsonaro's campaign. Uh, it happened as well in Bolivia. As soon as Evo Morales was thrown out of the government, the, the Bible was, you know, was the cent took a center stage. So I think that those forms of populism um, and its links, for example, to religion, that's something that's happening across the region, even in places you wouldn't think it, it would happen. Um, so that, that, for example, other things like closer to the political economy of communication, I also think that you can think through a regional lens, right? So the things that happen uh, in Latin America regarding the political economy of the media, concentration issues, those are the same uh, people who own, for example, um, many media outlets and media organizations across the region. So that's something that you can think uh, through a regional lens, for example. So it's a mix of the, the specificity of, the, of being in Central America and paying attention to that, and then trying to connect that to broader things that I think links us. Because even if there's a lot of variety, uh, there's also many similarities and, and you feel Latino, right? You feel connected to what happens in Argentina, uh, cultural industry, industries, you know, Argentinian, Argentinian cultural industries have had uh, impact in Costa Rica's media system. Um, Mexico, of course, as well, because it's, it's very close from Costa Rica, but you get those mixes all the time. And that's what makes Latin America so, so interesting and so special, I say. And how about the U.S.? Because you mentioned that there is a very large population of emigres in uh, New Jersey, for instance. Um, right. How about the connection between sort of the Central American Latinidad and the uh, in a Latino community or Latinx community in the U.S.? Is that something that is discussed um, in it, Costa Rica it, among your colleagues in the field? Right. Yeah, it is. It is definitely. Um, I mean, it, it, there's always this discussion, right, about what happens in places like Florida, Miami, for example, which is this cultural center where. Uh, but I, but I don't think that describes exactly what uh, you know Central American Latinidad is in the U.S. I think it's more tied to what happens in the Northern Triangle, you know, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, and how those people get 
to the United States. So Costa Rica has a different pattern in terms of, of migration. Uh, we have fewer people migrating because of historical reasons than, for example, in Salvador. Salvador has more people abroad than inside the country, which is uh, pretty, pretty unbelievable, right? Uh, so we don't have those sort of migration uh, patterns. Um, it's a different kind of thing. And so, so certain people will reflect over here on why is it that the people who migrate from Costa Rica to the United States usually come from the same regions and, and things like that. Um, but I wonder if, for example, someone who studies migration processes or even uh, Latinidad in a place like LA uh, would include Costa Rica as part of Central America's uh, you know, community or, or um, cultural traditions. Uh, Costa Rica has a very small population too. So if you compare to our neighbors, uh, we're, we're always uh, the minority, I would say. Um, so yeah, I, I would reflect that along the lines of, you know, there's the influence that places like Miami have across the region and all the media that is uh, media content that is being produced from places like that to Costa Rica. And then this very particular trend or very particular patterns in migration from a place like Costa Rica to places like New Jersey. Okay, excellent. So Ignacio, going back to your sort of, uh, to the beginning of our conversation, um, to your experiences in the field as a whole and bringing, you know, your particular positionality now um, to that. If you, from the vantage point that you have today, if you had, you know, somebody gave you magical powers and, you know, you were granted one wish about one thing that you would like the field of communication and media studies to change, what would you wish for? Yeah, that's a, that's a very good question and it's, it's tough to answer. As I said, I think academia, it's uh, the best and reflects the best and, and the worst of, of our society. So, so hopefully communication studies uh, in the world could be a much more diverse place. Um, so I told you about this anecdote about uh, going in Millennium Park, showing around the places to my sister and to my sister-in-law. And sometimes I feel like the reviews I've gotten are not that different from that comment I received that day. Uh, so I would like the field to be a little bit, a little bit more, more open to diversity. You, you, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So being able to see the world through a different uh, mindset. But I also would say that in order to get to meet uh, at a halfway through, um, I would invite colleagues in other places who have never even read anything about Costa Rica to do so. But I would also challenge us who live, who live here to, to be more ambitious in terms of the kind of work that we like to do. Because as I said, I don't think we're in Latin America in particular, I, I don't think we're always trained to be in the position where you feel you can make a contribution to the body of work. So I think it takes efforts on both ends if you wanna see it like that. On the one hand, hopefully, um, you know, everywhere else people can be more open to the work that is done, that, that we're not assigned anymore to the panel uh, for those who do work in the South. <laughs> I would like to, uh, you know, to show that we can also say things that matter to other people who don't even live in the South. Uh, and at the same time, 
challenge um, people who live here, you know, to be more ambitious in terms of, okay, let's not be as descriptive as we sometimes are. Let's try to be, um, and of course, that takes a lot of, of, of opportunities and, and resources. And, but if you're asking me how I would like to change the, the field, I would say, hopefully we can, Latin American can show, um, especially in media studies, show more uh, ambition in terms of the kind of theories that we can produce to capture the, the how vibrant things are when it comes to the use and production of, of media technologies in, in regions like this one. All right, that's a absolutely superb answer. Thank you so much, Ignacio, for a truly, truly enlightening conversation. I have enjoyed it very, very much. Uh, thank you to our listeners for staying with us through the end. And I invite you to tune in for the next episode of El Café Latinx. Goodbye. El Café Latinx is a production of the Center for Latinx Digital Media in the Department of Communication Studies at Northwestern University. I am Pablo Wojcikowski, your host, and I'm joined by executive producer Mona Matassi.